AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for February 23rd, 2017. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Uh, today, we're joined online by Jim Clausing. Hey, Jim, how's it going this week? Going well, going well. All right, good. And uh, here on the couch with me uh, this week, we have Matt Kaiser. Hey, Matt, how's it going? Good as always. Good to have you back. And uh, Joe Harton, also one of our frequent contributors. How's it going, Joe? Pretty good, thanks. Good. Um, so I'm John Hogeboom, and uh, let's go to the first story. The first one uh, is one that you were looking at, Jim, that I thought was pretty interesting, uh, related to some uh, protocol bypass using Java and Python. Uh, what can you tell us about this one? This one was interesting to me in, in a number of ways. Um, it's been reported in a number of places, but it appears that the one that started the disclosure was a, a, a German researcher on shiftordie.de posted a, a, a blog about how he was seeing um, SM, SMTP over XXE, XML external entity uh, basically vulnerabilities. And what, it, what was happening is there's apparently a, a bug in the way that Java and Python handle FTP. FTP is an ancient protocol and, you know, was developed, you know, RFC, I think 959 or something defines FTP. So it's was developed in the 70s or or maybe before that and it turns out that that attackers under the right conditions are able to make java or or python scripts that have the that are linked to the the right libraries um, they think they're doing ftp but in fact, they're not parsing the URL properly, and they can be forced to turn around and send out SMTP that could be used for spamming. Mm -hmm. It's a little complicated to actually exploit, but uh, there are some rough discussions of how it's done. The actual proof of concept code hasn't been released yet, because Oracle was informed of the issues with the Java implementation in November, uh, and the Python folks were informed of the issues with the with the Python implementation in, I believe, January, and neither of them have released uh, patches for it yet. So they're not uh, the guys that discovered it are not. Uh, releasing their proof of concept code yet, but uh, apparently some of these are exploits have actually been seen in the wild, which led uh, my friend Johannes Ulrich at the Internet Storm Center 
to do a, a quick post of how you can uh, harden your postfix SMTP servers so that if some of this fake Java gets sent to your SMTP server, your SMTP server will drop it. Because right now, if you send an SMTP server uh, user and pass the you know the commands that are used in FTP to identify the username and pass the password, most SMTP servers will say, "Yeah, we don't know what that is, but go on with your next command." And so, what uh, Johannes's fix does is, if it sees user or pass, it'll say, "Nope, you're obviously doing." something that is not SMTP, so we're just going to drop your connection. I, I haven't in, I, I've been reading you know, three or four different posts on this and haven't entirely figured out what all the issues are, but at the very least, it looks like there's a, a parsing error that um, when, when a URL uh, contains carriage return line feed in there encoded, you know, the, these libraries should interpret that properly, and they're not. And the, what that also means is that if you've got some Java application that has poured open through a firewall, that if you know the internal IP address of an SMTP server, an external attacker could bypass the firewall, possibly spamming you from the inside kind of a thing. This one's pretty cool. Um, it, it does remind me a little bit that there are other protocols where this sort of protocol injection works where you start off um, and you're able to put some data into a field and then break the actual flow of the, right, right. Of the protocol. So in HTTP, if you can get data into, say, a cookie or a header field, you can actually sometimes add in your own character turn line feed and then break and start your brand new HTTP request, right, right. which is kind of cool. Right. Uh, and this reminds me a whole lot of that because you're taking you know, protocols that are very similar with FTP, and then you're, you're jamming SMTP in there, and, and it's getting treated as, well, okay, I guess we'll, we're, we're speaking this now. Right. The other interesting thing, I, I was reading, like, um, the follow-up article, well, I guess it's, it's uh, part of this story, but somebody kind of took this to the next level, and the interesting thing about FTP, if you're familiar with it, is it was kind of written in a really backwards way before everybody really did stuff, so the client actually becomes a server and he has to, you know, um, he basically tells the server that he's trying to connect to a port to rendezvous back with him on. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's called classic FTP. And uh, a lot of firewalls have implemented functionality to kind of understand that, oh, this, this IP address is trying to do a classic FTP session. I'm going to open a firewall port to allow this return path to come through. So using this exploit, in theory, it's possible that you could, you know, arbitrarily inject some commands there to send your own port opening commands yeah. uh, along the way, but you kind of still have to know where you're trying to send it back into. Um, but it's kind of interesting that you can kind of muck around with the, potentially, if the firewall supports classic FTP port forwarding, um, you know, to muck around with the firewall table to arbitrarily open ports uh, from the outside in. Um, so an interesting kind of thing. Uh, I guess the two mitigations I can think of that come to mind is 
uh, you know, from the client side, if you can avoid using Java, avoid using it altogether. Um, I'm not really sure how the Python one comes into play because I don't know if there's a lot of Python bindings like right from a browser or whatnot, but um, I didn't really follow that one. But you know, for sure, you know, Java would be something that would potentially be disableable, but you know, a lot of enterprises require it for a lot of, you know, sometimes in-house, a lot of companies have goofy Java applications that they've made or they have some reliance on Java for some reason. Um, and then the other option I can think of right out of the gate is to, um, if you do have classic FTP um, uh, port forwarding supported on your firewall, you might want to disable that. Yeah. There's a passive version that doesn't use that weird kind of back channel rendezvousing um, that can still be used. So that might be a, a way to mitigate against that. Did you have any other thoughts on that, Jim, about other mitigating ways to deal with this problem? The, you're, you're exactly right. Those are the, the big ones until the patches come out. In fact, the, one of the folks, uh, one of the researchers that was, that had, the one that has the proof of concept code that hasn't released it yet, their suggestions were uninstall Java from all your desktops. Well, okay, that's not necessarily always possible. Right. Um, disable the Java browser plugins uh, or and dissociate the JNLP um, file extension from Java Web Start because that was one of the the tools that they had, uh, you know, one of the vectors that they had shown. Mm -hmm. And again, you're absolutely right about the classic FTP. Classic FTP is a, a nightmare on firewalls. It should have been turned off on your firewalls since you put your first firewall in in 1995 or you know 1992 or whenever the first firewalls came into being. Passive FTP, as you said, if you really need to use the FTP protocol, and at this point I would highly recommend that if you're doing file transfers, you should be doing them in an encrypted form anyway. But if you must use FTP, use passive FTP, because then the client is initiating both the control connection and the data connection, as opposed to, as you said, with the classic FTP, the client initiates the control and the server initiates the data connection. Don't want that. The client should be initiating all the connections. Right, right. Do we have any, is there any prognosis on patches for this, Jim? I I haven't heard anything, and the the guys, uh, the researchers who discovered the issue, um, last I heard, they hadn't heard back from anything, you know, from either Oracle or the Python folks. But, you know, with the Python, it's the URL or URL, URL lib or URL lib2, depending on whether you're running Python 2 or Python 3, has a similar um, parsing issue where the, you know, it doesn't properly interpret the carriage return line feed if it's encoded in the, in the username in the URL. So, uh, no idea when these will get patched, hopefully soon. And, you know, if, if they do pat get patched, we'll hopefully at least do a little blurb on the show mentioning that it's finally been patched. But 
All right. Yeah, it's definitely one to keep an eye on. I guess, you know, now that it's known, it didn't look overly complicated. Some, I, you know, a couple of the articles out there kind of led me down a path of, this looks like it's not necessarily that complicated to, to, um, to perform. Uh, maybe to perform successfully might be a trick, but... Um, yeah, the, the key is, um, the, the tricky part is really in um, the determining the IP address to, you know, to relay it to. Right. And, right. and then packet alignment um, is, is the other issue, because as they point out in the uh, blind spot security article, um, FTP was designed to be a synchronous line-based protocol. Client sends a line, the server sends back a response. The client sends another line, the server sends back another response. Uh, and so there are some, some issues with getting the, the packet alignment, but apparently it must not be too difficult because some folks have figured out how to do it. Right, right. All right. Well, definitely an interesting one, I think, to keep an eye on. So at least we'll see how this progresses. Hopefully not much, but uh, hopefully the patches get out there sooner than later. All right. Uh, so moving on to the next story, explosion of ransomware in 2016. Right. So uh, I picked up on a couple stories that just kind of gave an overview and some trends in ransomware. Um, the first being on secure list. Uh, Kaspersky Lab put out some statistics. Uh, they kind of looked at the trend from the first quarter of 16 to through the third quarter and just gave some kind of eye-catching stats. Um, one being that uh, an, an individual was attacked every 20 seconds at the beginning of the year and by the end of the third quarter that was down to every 10 seconds. And business on the same time period went from every two minutes to every 40 seconds. Uh, so, you know, definitely a, a trend there that's, you know, alarming. Something else interesting, they said one in five businesses who paid never got their data back. And then there was over 30,000 new ransomware variants throughout the year. And within that, 62 new families. And then one of the in most interesting things, and that's kind of, I think they pulled it as their headline and tried to use that to grab attention, but they identified 47 of the 62 being from Russian-speaking individuals or groups, uh, probably based on some, you know, uh, fingerprinting of the, the right. uh, ransomware within the, what they found. So just an interesting kind of summary of what happened. Um, piggybacking on that, I had seen in my Twitter feed recently uh, a message from Michael Hypenin at F-Secure, basically showing this, uh, you know, he calls it a tube map, but it's really a, you know, what we think of in the U.S. as a subway map of... Yeah the variants of ransomware um, that came out of their state of cybersecurity report for 2017. And really it just shows, you know, year by year, starting with 2012, there's, you know, one, two, three, four uh, families. And then last year it's, you know, they have to break it out monthly that there's 15, 20 uh, families of ransomware per month. So it really just explodes. Hopefully we'll be able to show the graphic with the show but really eye-catching, you know, you know, really graphical way of just showing how this ransomware trend is really, it's really picked up in the last year or so. And 
um, just, you know, exploded, like you yeah. said. It's an alarming trend. I mean, we've yeah. been covering uh, a bunch of different stories on the show throughout last year. I know towards the end of the year, we're kind of talk. well, I mean, we talked about <clears throat> a lot of hospitals were getting yep. ransomware. Yeah. Um, it seems like these actors who are targeting victims with ransomware are doing specific targeting are doing so towards targets that really can't be without their data for any length of time. So if they're missing their data, you know, it's a really big problem. Right. So um, hospitals was one, we had like a transit system was one. Yep. We've also seen them targeting small to medium sized businesses and some construction companies. I think we've seen uh, a lot, these companies that maybe have less than a thousand people in them and whatnot. And uh, I think that's because they're small enough that they're probably not gonna get really good attention from law enforcement or help from law enforcement because the amount that's being asked for is maybe like two Bitcoin or something like that. Um, whereas if it was a bigger company, they might actually file with law enforcement and get more action or traction, I don't know. Uh, it's hard to say why, but I think they're getting better response from these small companies because they're just like, oh, we'll pay whatever, you know, it's Although 500 bucks, that, I'll, de I'll deal with it. One thing that I pulled out of this is that they're saying one of the biggest roadblocks for the groups trying to collect the ransom is that smaller the business, smaller the individual, the harder it is for them to get a Bitcoin, to get an account on Bitcoin. So either uh, they don't have it or yeah, they don't have credit or they don't have the right, you know, access to, you know, they don't know how to sign. Yeah, I mean, there is a little but, bit of a, yeah. if you're not familiar with Bitcoin, there's a bit yeah. of a hurdle to like, how do I get some Bitcoin? Well, <laughs> yeah. But it's part, not that impossible. The ransomware families that are at least the big names that I'm aware of, things like Locky, when they have the message that says your machine is, is encrypted, it does list, here's the places you can get right. Bitcoin in order oh, to pay yeah. us. Okay. So some people who have, some of the, the malware authors who have turned it into a real business plan, have realized these hurdles and are getting they over They give a little it. FAQ. Here's how yeah, you get do. started with Bitcoin so yeah. you can pay us. I don't like that, but I could see that, you know, yeah. um, that makes sense for them if they want to get paid. Well, there's a story, I think, of maybe a year ago on NPR, maybe two years even, about somebody who got ransomware. It went back when it was like a brand new thing to, to be aware of. And they were having trouble because they couldn't get Bitcoin in time for the counter to oh, run right. down because it said you have X number of hours and they were struggling and they couldn't figure it out and they had to actually get in touch with the malware author and ask for an extension, <laughs> which is like, oh man. I, I don't like that, but no. um, it's also not surprising to me that uh, a lot of this is coming from Russian speaking uh, organizations. We know a lot of crimeware, a lot of financial oriented crimeware comes out of Russian speaking countries yeah. um, or that part of the world. Yeah, I mean, this report from F-Secure does some pretty interesting attribution stuff where they try to sort of point to nation state versus nation state and, you know, attribute who's more frequently going after which other nation state. I mean, kind of, you know, dicey stuff, but, you know, it's, you know what they've put out there is their, their view of it. So it's, it's an interesting report. There, there's a bunch of case studies there. Uh, you know, success stories, what, what's working in terms of fighting ransomware, you know, keeping regular backups, uh, removing unneeded software, and obviously, you know, having good email practices. Uh, and they're also saying that a lot of the tools that we kind of think of as, you know, the bread and butter, just having firewalls and having security tools in place, that is, you know, kind of layer one in terms of right. protecting yourself from ransomware and where that's in place, the frequency of having or the chances of getting ransomware are a lot better. 
right. You were talking about the the small and medium businesses getting hit, and that's the company that my son works for has been hit twice, hmm. and they've paid both times. They didn't have good backups, and the their you know their security awareness training was lacking, so that the you know, the boss was the one who clicked on the the link both times, got him infected, and you know it's the those are the kinds of shops that are in in danger because they they're small enough they don't have you know a dedicated security team or even a dedicated IT team. Mm-hmm. They don't have good security awareness type training. And, you know, people fall for it. I mean, we, we see that all the time. People fall for it. They right. click on things they shouldn't click on. Well, definitely a trend that hopefully isn't going to get worse, but definitely has gotten worse last year. And I would yeah. expect more so this year. Um, and uh, if you haven't run across ransomware, count yourself lucky. Mm-hmm. But most of us have here and there. So, um uh, not necessarily personally, but having to help others with it. So um, uh, definitely something that you don't want to have to deal with. But having good practices around that is uh, always good. Have a good backup strategy is one of the ones that I would definitely recommend. All right. Uh, so moving on to the next story. Uh, an ASLR busting attack yeah. that you were looking at, Matt. So this is pretty cool. Uh, so. ASLR is address-based layout randomization for those who haven't heard of it. It's basically a, a mitigation against memory corruption attacks. Right. So that if someone does manage to, say, you know, perform a buffer overflow attack and blow past the end of memory somewhere, it makes it much harder for them to write reliably to a place in memory they can then control control flow. Right. So if memory is not in a, if it's random, if things aren't laid out the way you expect it every time, you have to do a lot more work to find where you need to write to, right. basically. Um, but this is new research that's come out. Um, they're calling it ASLR plus cache, or ANC. It doesn't have a logo, though, which is fine. <laughs> um, but it uses the, the memory map unit cache to de-randomize memory, which is kind of interesting. It's, it's sort of a tug of war between two functions of, uh, of the processor. One is that you want to be able to use ASLR to protect the processes running on it. But the other side, you need to be able to cache certain parts of memory for performance reasons, right. and if you were to turn off this caching entirely, your your your, your performance your would performance so, go in the toilet. It, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's a very difficult bug to fix at this level, and it really is in the processor. It's not bug in software, but it's um, it will help you if you're trying to exploit any other bug in a system that uses ASLR. This removes a lot of the work if you can pull it off correctly. Right. Right. Um, so my understanding of it is at a surface level. I tried. I read it two or three times. I still feel like I need to go back and get the details, but basically the MMU is there to translate the virtual memory to physical memory, and the attack can tell when um, memory locations are accessed. Um, so you've got this page table, and if something is in the cache, it doesn't have to go all the way through the page table to find something, but if it's not in cache, if you clear out the cache first, they have to go through the entire thing, and that saves a little bit of memory of what's been seen, what's not been seen. I right. think is, I hope I'm saying this, my understanding it right. Um, but basically by forcing it to clear out and then walk through the page table, you can get just enough information 
to bypass that randomization because you start getting bits of this is where things are right, where, that we're actually interested in. Executing. Okay. So, so where does the JavaScript come in play with so this? So this is interesting because apparently there are, there are functions within JavaScript that allow you to ma manipulate memory at this level. Which is I never realized yeah, well, that. Realize like it. JavaScript has gone gone from like a thing that you used to use back in the '90s to make you know things flash on your page, and now it's a full-on mature programming right, language at this language, point. Yeah. Scripting language. Um, so the attack itself doesn't rely on JavaScript. I should make that clear. Um, the code that's been released is native code, C code, I believe, on GitHub, and you can use it locally on a machine to advance any attacks on systems that have ASLR. The JavaScript code has not been released, but they do have like a video showing proof of concept that you know you could do it in a browser, which is pretty amazing. I mean, it's a little worrying. I mean, right, for me, right. I would, that'd be the, the point at which so I turned off. Potentially a drive-by exploit that downloads some huge Java exactly. library script that does this yep. to figure it out. So again, J JavaScript is the the interesting shiny version of the attack, but the the native version will work just fine. Uh, and again, it works against 22 different microarchitectures from Intel and AMD and ARM. Oh, okay, so it's, right, not just x86 right. or x64 types. Okay, interesting. So it's it's pretty neat. Um, but I, like I said, it's sort of a a bolt-on to existing. Right, you still kind of have to know where you're trying to, you know, corrupt memory of a process or something. I guess, right? Right. Like you'd have to have a target. This just helps yeah, you. Yeah, this find is it. not a vulnerability that gets you. You know, this is not the buffer overflow. This is the Right. The part the that makes the buffer where overflow. Where am I supposed to put my buffer overflow? Right, right, right. <laughs> Interesting. So I mean, that's a, it's a big deal for the last ten years. ASLR and and DEP, which is in data execution prevention, those two have really been the big, um, in my opinion, the biggest protections that we have on modern systems against you know buffer overflow attacks and those sort of classical stack smashing attacks. Mm -hmm. And now you have a fairly reproducible attack that can bypass one of those. It's a big deal. So right now, this is pretty much kind of proof of concept, researchy kind of stuff, not really so, exploits in the wild kind of situation. As far as I know, no exploits in the wild, but if the code is on GitHub, it's only a matter of time. The JavaScript version has not been released yet. So okay. expect it to happen, maybe packaged in with, with some other exploit and a binary on a system, but not in a, an exploit kit today. Okay, interesting. I'll have to keep an eye on that one as well, I guess. All right, uh, thanks for bringing that to us. So let's jump into the internet weather, and I will say that it's a very balmy, calm internet weather this week. If you've watched the internet weather before, it's pretty much a repeat of last week. Um, I wouldn't say it's uh, sunny skies, because it's always IoT bots scanning the internet and force, but um, it's pretty... the equivalent of like Groundhog Day for the internet weather. Yes, where, it's like, where... yes, Groundhog Day for internet weather, which timely since we're in February here. Um, so let's just run through it really quickly, um, but there's no real big surprises. I have one thing I'll talk about that's really not on the chart here, but kind of what I would call below the fold, as it were, in the old newspaper days of a story, uh, something to continue to keep an eye on. Um, but uh, what we do have uh, in terms of the top most probed ports, Telnet, 23 TCP is your first one. 5358 TCP, we've talked about this on the show. This is kind of uh, still yet to be determined, not really sure. It might be related to uh, proxy scanning, squid proxies, but we'll take a closer look at that one as well. 7547 is um, the CPE WAN management protocol port. And there is some devices that had a TR64 exploit against that port, but I don't think there was a lot of them. 
but still, there's a bunch of IoT-based botnets, notably Mirai, one of them, that is scanning for this port. I should mention 5358 as well as 23TCP are also related to IoT and Mirai and some of these other families of, there's more than just Mirai out there. You know, there's Tsunami and Hydra and what? Hajime, I think. Hajime, right, is another one that's kind of come into the fold lately. So there's a whole bunch of these families of malware that are running on various embedded types of Linux, de Linux devices, IoT type devices that have been put out on the internet. Um, and most of these ports are being scanned related to that. Uh, 22 TCP SSH, also probably for brute force password guessing, just like the Telnet stuff. 1900 UDP is simple service discovery protocol. This one is probably related to actors looking for SSDP um, devices that answer for uh, uh, distributed denial of service reflection type attacks. Uh, maybe not necessarily IoT devices. I don't think I've seen uh, the IoT stuff scanning for that, but it's probably other actors for you know, DDoS purposes. 3389 TCP is your remote desktop protocol. Uh, again, brute force password guessing. If you can get RDP onto a machine, that's pretty good because now you've got like a full Windows or Linux, whatever, is being shared on RDP that you can go manage remotely. Uh, 1911 TCP is the... Niagara Tritium. Yeah, there you go. Uh, both Matt and Jim had it there. The Niagara Fox Tritium uh, building automation industrial control system type port. This is mostly um, legitimate scanning from the, what I've seen. I think we did mention, or maybe you did last week, you noticed there was a new actor that was scanning for this, but it's another good guy, I should quote, good guy security research kind of team um, trying to find out how much of this is out there on the internet. Uh, 1433 TCP is um, uh, Microsoft SQL Server. Uh, there's still just a lot of scanning for that in general. Um, there have been some worms on that in the ancient history days. Uh, you've got your web, and then we have uh, 21 TCP, which is FTP. So there's always actors out there looking for FTP servers that they can use for various purposes to either store files or um, other related infrastructure type things in their botnet. Uh, there's not, this is the most sources probing. This one is going to tell you. Uh, more so what ports are being scanned in mass by large numbers of bots because uh, you have more sources uh, probing on it. So again, you're going to see your Telnet, your C CPE when management protocol on 7547, 5358, that weird one we don't really know about. You got a bunch of ICMP that's probably just kind of backscatter stuff from devices that are not listening on those ports, kind of saying, hey, I'm not listening or I am. And SMB, uh, 445 TCP, is Windows file sharing, is also uh, frequently scanned for uh, by uh, compromised devices. And that's really all I see there. We got BitTorrent, but BitTorrent is kind of um, the 6881 UDP might not be real, or at least not a security related issue. It's probably showing up in our scanning because the nature of the way that protocol works. Right. Yeah, one nice thing about that graph is that it's no longer the Pac-Man. Yeah. <laughs> Port 23 isn't 70% of the scanning. It know. was, like, off the charts for a while. Well, actually, I have a 23 TCP chart here that I'll show. So we can see where we're at relative to those days when we were really off the charts with a almost closed pie chart, like you're saying. Um, so this is the 7547 TCP CPE WAN management protocol. There is... Um, Maybe a, I would consider a small number of devices that either can be impacted or affected by this and maybe not necessarily get truly exploited so much as they just crash. 
but uh, and I don't even know what the total numbers of those are. Uh, but we do know that the Mirai family of malware likes to scan for this for whatever reason. It was really high. We started seeing it maybe somewhere around the middle of November, or no, I'm sorry, that towards the end of November of last year is when we first started to see this activity um, uh, kick up. And it's, it's definitely come down in terms of the number of sources scanning on it. Uh, but we've kind of hit like this steady state of maybe, what is that, maybe 40,000 scan sources per hour where it just kind of has kind of hung around there for the past several uh, weeks or at least the, the last month or more at kind of a very um, static level there. So one to keep an eye on. We know because we've been watching some of the Mirai bots scanning that this is, they are definitely um, scanning for this port. And we see the types of things they're scanning for. And I think we've shown it on the show before some exploit types patterns they'll throw in the TR64 NTP, set NTP servers request. And most ignore it, most devices ignore it, but there might be a small handful that don't handle that, um, that request well. Uh, but what they are, I don't know, to be honest with you. So here's the Telnet one. And Telnet, so back in the, let's say, September, was that, um, uh, yeah, maybe September, mid-September, of last year, we we're up around 450,000 scan sources per hour, which is pretty heavy. I think that's probably the heaviest we've ever really seen on something scanning, except maybe Conficker or something like that way back when. And now we're down to maybe 150,000 scan sources per hour. So it's kind of come down. I would not place bets on it going away. It's definitely gonna stay um, because there's still so many devices out there. And there is this little weird tug of war that goes on where different families of malware that are vying for these devices and then the device gets rebooted and it's clean and then another family of malware comes and infects it and locks up all the ports and now he's got it for a week until the person reboots it again and then somebody else gets it. So uh, it's kind of this uh, weird tug of war going on there. But um, it's definitely less than it had been. You know, that's probably accounting for why that part chart is not as closed as it was before in terms of the scanning on 23TCP. And this is a one-year chart shown, by the way. So last year was a really bad year. This year is not so great, but it's better than it was towards the end of last year. So this one's interesting, because this is that 5358 TCP. It's well known as the Web Services for Devices Secured Port. So this would be like, if you were HTTP and HTTPS, this would be the HTTPS version of the Web Services for Devices port. But there really aren't any recent exploits on this. Uh, at least not that I'm aware of since 2009, so I don't think that's what they're scanning for. I haven't actually been able to capture any packet captures of any attempts on this. Um, there are a large number of scan sources in the US. Lots of them are DVRs, other embedded IoT type devices, which is you know, how we know that it's some family of these malwares, but what they're looking for in particular, I'm not quite sure. I do know from Shodan that there are you know, a few thousand at least squid proxies um, listing on 5358. I don't know if that's what they're looking for. It's the only kind of thing I could kind of wrap my head around that maybe would make sense. Um, but it's interesting that they did kind of a scan between late, uh, towards the end of last year, right after Christmas into early January. And then they stopped completely for a few weeks. Um, and then they went kind of it's you know a whole hog and so let's just go with this run with it and they've been running with it with about 60,000 scan sources per hour scanning for this port 
again, to what end exactly, I'm not quite sure of. So. It's interesting, there's a very distinct daily cycle at the top yeah. of the chart. Yeah, it's very regular. Uh, very regular, kind of like the 7547 was very regular too at this point. You know, this has a very kind of regular waveform. We're looking at a longer period of time here, I think, but um, it's interesting. So uh, another one to keep an eye on. If anybody has any, you know, everybody watches the show and has like concrete evidence of what this is about, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Please uh, send us an email. I'll give you the information in a second here. Um, the last one I have, which is kind of below the fold, more IoT junk, but not on our top 10 uh, scanning port. This is a look at since January of 2016, the beginning of last year, just so you could see where it started. So around this time last year, maybe February 23rd, it looks like, or so, 24th, um, we started to see large number of scan sources on port 4028 TCP. Historically, back into like 2014 maybe, there had been discussion that the light IDRA family of malware used that port for some reason, but I don't really, I, I haven't been able to find any uh, information on that. When you look in Shodan, and you know, we can look at the IPs for these scan sources and look them in Shodan and see what are they, they're all these, you know, more IoT devices. It's a lot of, you know, little Soho routers, other embedded Linux things. I noticed a lot of video conference appliances, embedded video conference devices were in that list. Kind of curious, another one to watch. It has kind of trailed off a little bit um, since, you know, the end of last year, but it's still pretty, you know, there's a decent significant number of sources here. It's not that many. It's like maybe a thousand or something. Um, but there's something going on there that I'd like to understand more, and I don't have the answers for everybody about what it's about. But it's definitely some sort of infected devices talking. The one thing I will um, mention here is the well-known usage for this port, DT server dashboard, if you look at IANA, it's registered to the Embarcadero DT Studio data modeling software, which has nothing to do with this exploit as far as, I mean, there's no exploit that I'm aware of on this port. It has nothing to do with it. I think it's just whoever's using this is just stomping on the same port. They're just using the same port that, that, that would use that. I'm not aware that there's any, because um, uh, there's definitely not a lot of that deployed out on the internet. So much so that it's, it, it's like I could count it on both my hands. That's how many there are. So um, as far as I'm aware. So I don't think it has anything to do with it. So that's the uh, internet weather for this week. Again, not much new. Pretty much the same thing we've always seen. Uh, so that's the show for today. Uh, thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, like if you know anything about any of these ports we talked about that are still a little bit of a mystery to me, uh, please reach out to us. You can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can also find the ATT Threat Track program on the AT&T Tech Channel. It's available also on YouTube and iTunes as an audio podcast. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Business. I'd like to thank you, Jim. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Joe. Uh, I'm John Hogeboom. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.